Father, we come before you to declare your goodness. You go before. You dwell within. You hold the future. And through it all, we declare you are good. And you're ours. Thank you for that. Thank you that we are yours. Amen. Let me have a seat. You guys need me to plug back in and plug back out or what? No worries. Hey, there we go. When I was in my late teen years, I came forward in my church, met with the elders, and made my profession of faith. And my pastor in that moment gave me this book. And I have to admit that when he did, I was kind of insulted. I thought, I just made my profession of faith, and now you tell me that I don't even know Jesus. A rather simple reading of the cover, in my ignorance and in my pride, made me leave this book on the shelf for a very long time. My story is probably like that of a lot of those who grew up in the church, where our moment of conversion isn't so much where we get introduced to Jesus for the first time, But our moment of conversion is when we realize we actually want him. When we come into touch with our own hunger and realize that all the things that have been given to us and spoon-fed to us and told to us, at some point in time, we have to decide whether or not they actually become our own. After two years on the bookshelf, I actually picked this book up. And looking back now, this is the first Christian book that I ever read of my own volition. It wasn't just a catechism that had been prescribed to me on a Tuesday night to memorize or a Sunday school lesson or a book I had to read for Bible class in school, and it ignited something in me. I realized that my profession of faith really was just a profession of hunger. See, growing up, I thought that Christianity was a combination of the way that you acted, what you believed, and about where you were going to go when you died. And I think for those of us who are brought up in the church, often our moment of conversion is a realization that we want something a little bit more than that. I started to get drawn not only to writers like Philip Yancey, but to others, and I started to read more and to listen to more stories, and I was intrigued by this notion of the celebration of God to simply be in his presence, and that Christianity wasn't about my performance. That it wasn't the sum of all the things that I was doing or whether or not I could make God happy with me. And this theological term that I'd heard all my life started to find a new meaning every time I heard the word grace. You know that too-good-to-be-true mystery of grace? The fact that nothing that you can say or do from this moment for the rest of the day or for the rest of your life is actually going to change God's sentiment towards you. 
Nothing that I can accomplish, nothing that I can conquer, no new ground that I can take for the kingdom of God or people I can baptize, none of that is going to make Jesus love me more than he already does because he is thrilled with me. And now I have to start questioning everything I thought I was ever told about a good Christian person is supposed to do. Why do we do what we do if God is already perfectly pleased with you? And if your rightness with God has already been accomplished because of the person of Jesus, then something about our pride inside of us has to die in order to get us to the place that we don't want to put something else on top of that. Not Jesus and me going to a good Christian college. Not Jesus and the denomination that I go to. Not Jesus and something else. A doctrinal statement particular belief, the political party I align with, even my stance on vaccinations. God's delight in me and my rightness with him is not up for grabs. And nowhere else in the Bible, perhaps, is this topic of grace more thoroughly and passionately explored than in Paul's letter to the young church in Galatia. A lot of biblical scholars would argue that this is actually his first letter that he's written after his first missionary journey, and I want to walk this semester through this book with you because I think it has so much to say specifically to our time. And this early church, and if it was the first one that Paul wrote to, we already see already then and find ourselves in good company that the Christian tendency is to revert back to, just tell me what I have to do. Just tell me what the rules are. Because learning to walk in step with the Spirit and to launch off the platform and to define our lives by the spiritual goodness of God and the third person of the Trinity who wants to work in us and through us is actually a lot more complicated than just tell me what to do. What is it that we believe about this again, Pastor Aaron? How far is too far with my boyfriend, girlfriend? Just, just tell me the rules so I know where I stand. See, but presence, instead of performance, in the context of an intimate relationship, is so much more. Why would we settle for an anemic version of Christianity or a life in Jesus? Or stories about him that we learn outside of ourselves, rather than accepting his desire to want to work in us and through us, to not have God beside you or just simply his words in your hands, but God within you. What's so interesting about Paul in this letter is so many of his reactions to this and how significant he thinks this failure is going to be if you put Jesus plus fill in the blank with anything. We're going to walk through this series this semester and talk about the limits of laws and gargantuan grace and why Paul is so upset if we would ever settle for anything less than that. Let's start at the beginning. Paul, an apostle sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches 
in the province of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should come preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now let me say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul opens his greeting with the most important word in the book of Galatians. I think after the name of Jesus, this is probably the Apostle Paul's favorite word in the world, grace. It's used over 100 times in his epistles and actually almost twice as many times as every other writer in the New Testament put together. Paul is a big fan of grace. Paul is obsessed with it. This is Martin Luther's favorite book of the Bible. You could just see where Paul, right, railing against people who want to introduce behaviors and a Jesus plus approach to Christianity, Martin Luther sees the same thing happening in his world pre-Reformation, where there are additional requirements being put upon God's people beyond just the salvation that is available to them in the work of Jesus Christ. Paul and Luther, loving this concept, grace. The unmerited favor of God, his undying adoration for you, his unending and continuing work done for you and in you, his obsession with you, his calling of you, his work within you. What's interesting in this letter, too, if you've taken classes before on the epistles or laid them side by side, all the different letters, they all have a similar form. And if Paul were taking Quintilian's formal letter-writing class in the Greco-Roman world, he would probably fail at this point in time because he skips the important Thanksgiving section where you start telling people what you're thankful for them for. And Galatians is an aberration from the pattern because Paul's got to get to the main point. Now keep in mind now, of all the other letters that Paul wrote and all the other problems he was helping churches solve, take for example just Corinthians. Somebody's sleeping with their mother-in-law, they're taking people to court, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, they're eating everything at the Lord's Supper before the servants all get there, they're boasting and bragging to one another about whose spiritual gifts are better than somebody else's. They're demeaning and causing factions amongst one another and taking each other to court. But Corinthians still get a Thanksgiving section. The Galatians don't. There's something about what's at stake here that has got Paul cutting straight to the chase. For him, this really is the heart of the gospel. I am astonished that you are so quickly 
deserting the one who called you. Notice when we talk about our fears of people leaving the church, we actually don't talk about them the same way that Paul does. I see all this literature today. It's part of my job, right? Read all this research and stuff coming about about people who are this generation who's leaving the church, those who are leaving the faith. Aren't we most concerned that we're losing our position of privilege and majority in culture? Or are we actually heart-sick, grief-stricken, lamenting the fact that image-bearers of God are finding themselves alienated and separated from and estranged from the Savior of the world? Are we worried about ourselves in this and our church's statistics? What actually motivates us in this? See, if I think it was actually for somebody who isn't going to get to experience the beauty of Jesus, we would be in a posture of lament, not rage. Our hearts would be broken because more and more people are getting to experience the fullness of who Jesus is and everything that he promised. Declining membership rules are a way smaller problem than that. Paul's upset not because they're leaving Christianity or because they're going a little bit this way or a little bit that way, but because they're at risk of losing the great work of Jesus. If you're in these Judaizers who are coming into Galatia and telling, well, you also need to be circumcised or you also need to follow this part of the law, Paul is like, no, 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 no. You add anything to this and you take away from the work of Jesus. So can we get our focus back there? The presence Overperformance? What do you hear in your own head and in your own soul when you read that? A freedom? I hope so. John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, rightly points out the term here for turning is actually the term used elsewhere in culture when a soldier would desert and turn to the other team's army. Like, this isn't just a slight turn to the left or to the right that he's talking about. Like you're going to end up in a pretty close, similar direction, but just not quite the same one you were initially headed towards. This is actually trading teams. This is worse than a Yankees fan starting to cheer for the Red Sox. This is even worse than a Vikings fan going to Lambeau Field. <laughs> <laughs> What Paul's talking about is not just a different gospel, but an anti-gospel. That's how high the stakes are here for him. The gospel does not tell us what we have to do to please God. Instead, it announces that God is already pleased with us. That's the gospel. That's what Paul was so excited to be saved from, this life of work and effort and all the laws and so following everything so perfectly and then telling everybody else they had to do the same thing. Grace is what saved him. Paul gets this better than anybody, so he's so passionate about this. Don't let this go. Don't give it up. Don't give up the best part of the thing that's ever been invented for all the religions of the entire world, the notion of grace. That God did for you what you could not do for yourself. And now you're free. And so he gets to this point, like right at the start of the letter, right? Like if anybody's going a different direction than this, just let me just be clear, let them be cursed. 
This is incredibly strong language. And this is, I think, one of Satan's favorite distraction techniques, obviously in the first century, is to get Christians arguing with each other. I remember waking up on Saturday mornings as a kid and watching Looney Tunes cartoons. It's one of my favorite times with my brother and sister. And inevitably, in one of these old Bugs Bunny cartoons, there were people all in a chase, and he'd end up going around like a rock or something, leading them in circles. And eventually, Bugs Bunny was always the one clever enough to hop outside, sit up on top of the rock, and watch everybody else chase everybody else's tails. Round and round they go. You pull out a carrot and sit and start watching and kind of laugh at this. I picture Satan doing that a lot in the church. Just get a bunch of Christians chasing after each other, talking about a whole bunch of topics that are very secondary to the person of Jesus and the work that we're supposed to be about, and sit back and laugh. Maybe if I can just get them all divided about how they read the Bible and discuss the end times, then they'll all break apart. Maybe I can get them arguing about which instruments they should use when they gather and worship, and then make themselves sound really, really righteous every time they fight about it. And then I'll sit up on a rock, and I'll watch the church unravel. And nobody in there will be talking about what's the most effective answer to the Great Commission, or the cultural mandate, or how we look in front of the rest of the world and the effectiveness of our witness. What do you think those are today? What is Satan laughing at today in Christ's church? Because his tactic worked. That we're all so busy arguing with one another, pursuing the right answer to a question in our life, that we're not even stopping to answer whether or not we look like Jesus while we're doing it, or we're even talking about him anymore while we do it. I'm going to ask the band to come back up and lead us in closing song if you guys find your way on up. And I want to close with this. Because the reality is that as soon as you add anything to grace, you lose grace altogether. And so my great heart and prayer, and even as we are gathering this morning talking about this, is that we as a body would just collectively, and this is where Galatians is heading, fallen in step with the Spirit means taking one step closer today. Not to right behavior, not to running away from a sin in your life. Those things all come, but they only ever come in closer proximity to Jesus. Can that be our heart's prayer? That we would ask God to lead us one step closer to Jesus today. Is there something inside of you that longs for transformation? No single book is going to answer that alone. There'll be all sorts of ways to solve all sorts of people around you. God's going to use a multitude of methods to get those things done. But the source of all transformation and all wisdom and all truth, where everything was made from and where everything is going, is still and always will be Jesus. Otherwise, we're just trying to please people. Which, according to Paul, is the opposite of being a servant of Christ. May you not be driven by fears of people's eyes or an affinity group you're trying to find a connection with. But just know that in the person of Jesus and in his perfect acceptance, everything rolls from there. It's what you were made for. Do not settle for anything less than that. His grace alone 